Live in the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Nadine Terman, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, buckle up. We are putting the pedal to the metal on the EV trade. Three big headlines. Moving three big stocks today, we'll break down who's really winning the EV race. Plus, buy the dip. Tim is making the case for a beaten down name today. He'll take the mound with a fast pitch. And later, scam, reckless, a raging dumpster fire. Those are just some of the words used in a scathing short seller report on medical technology company Berkeley Lights. The stock is down another 11% today. It is in, by the way, Kathy Wood's ARK ETF. We'll speak with that short seller coming up. We start off tonight with a big sign of strength for the consumer. Retail sales posting a surprise gain in August, shrugging off Delta variant concerns as well as supply chain issues. And take a look at the action today's session. Retail names checking out some big gains. Gap, Macy's, Nordstrom, more uh, and more ending the day in the green. And don't look now, but there's just 100 days left to go until Christmas. So with this countdown on, I'm counting down. Should you be betting on retail going into the holiday season? I'll let Guy absorb this and go to Jeff Mills. What do you think? <laughs> wow, I get to go before Guy. I'm honored. Uh, listen, I, I think it's generally good news. We've been wanting to position more cyclically here. I think the number clearly much better than expected. I think bears could point to certain elements of the number that maybe weren't as good as the headline might suggest, sort of a shifting of sales back to online, away from services. But again, you see a shifting of the direction of spending, but the demand in the spending is still there. So Overall, I think that's very good news. Uh, I think consumers still have excess savings. I think they're in a good position. The labor market continues to heal. All of that points to solid fundamentals for a lot of these companies going into the holiday season. And I think generally, I've been saying it for a while, I think if you're positioning for this growth scare narrative that I think is still going on, I think you're probably too late at this point. You've seen copper correct. You've seen oil correct. We've seen yields go down and then come back up. So I think you still want to be in this value cyclical area of the market, but be careful because I do think as we head into next year, you want to be in quality names. I think these high beta names that sort of popped off the bottom, probably not the best place to be. So I think about the targets, the Nikes of the world, high free cash flow yields. Those are the kind of companies I want to target right now. Those are, by the way, the companies, Tim, that also have a very strong online presence. So this shift is almost, it almost doesn't make a difference um, for a lot of these names that Jeff had mentioned. A lot of ones that we showed on the screen, Macy's, a gap, that have really improved their online service during the pandemic. And so even if there is a shift back indoors for any reason, um, they're there. Well, the, the question is, is Santa Claus already come to town? Because I, I think mm. for a bunch of these companies, you know, whether you're, yes, I did do that. Uh, whether it's Macy's or Nordstrom's or Gap, these are companies that needed to heal and really were on the land of misfit toys. Yeah, I did that too. And, and I think um, what they've done over the last 12 to 15 months through COVID, but you know, turnarounds that were accelerated by COVID, uh, they, they moved to a more digital presence. They were able to restructure leases and terrible real estate positioning. They were able to really get their inventory dynamics down and they were really able to, to find a place where there was loyalty and the incremental dollar was coming from digital. Um, you had Macy's today who gave third quarter guide. Uh, they upped their third quarter guide. So what they delivered after the second quarter numbers. And you saw a number of the houses around the street follow through with upgrades. Question is, you know, how much of that is in the price back to then a Target or a Costco or a Walmart? Um, look, Target, what they've been able to do in the last 12 to 20 months has been uh, all about the curbside pickup, recurring sales, um, higher ticket sales. Um, and with Walmart, it's about merchandise 
and, and where they're moving a little bit or hoping to move to, again, more merchandise out of food and, you know, kind of the commodities uh, and big box uh, dominant sales that they've had so far. I love Walmart here. Um, I think Target has been a beast. Uh, it's slowed recently and Costco is at the top of its game. So I think those are the places I feel most comfortable going into year end, whereas I think a lot of the specialty retail has had such a such a strong run that I, I think we've priced in a lot. Yeah, I mean, what happened today also, Nadine, home builders are very strong. And so you have that aspect of the retail strength story as well. So in what stocks do you think Santa Claus has not yet come to town? What 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 stock isn't <laughs> pricing in the strength? Well, Mel, I agree here with Jeff and Tim. And in fact, Tim even hinted at one of my names here. And we call them the two Bs. You've got brands and beasts. So you want brands like Nike, Lululemon. Obviously, they should continue with strength. And then you've got the beasts, people who can control their supply chains a little bit better. You heard about Costco, Target, Walmart. They're going to be able to control some of that pricing pressure and delivery of actual goods, which is going to be important because if you don't have the goods on your shelf, you can't sell it. Guy, I deviated from tradition by not going to you first because I was hoping that the other panelists would deliver a myriad of Christmas analogies, metaphors, etc. that would just drive you nuts. And but here we are. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on retail here in the in the 100 you days were until you were, Christmas? You were successful. I mean, you were so successful. I mean, you let me fester for you, for you Adams Family fans out there. You let me fester in this mm-hmm. six minutes of just hearing mistletoe yep. and... The Grinch and all, it makes me crazy. It's like 90 degrees outside. I don't want to hear about the holiday season until at least November. That being said, let's look at some of these trades at work. I've learned three things. How long have we been doing this show now, Mel? It's about 15 years. I've learned yes. a myriad of things, three of which I will share with you. Do not fight a land war in Asia. I actually learned that on this show. There are no meaningful baseball games in Flushing in the month of September. I learned that as well. And the third thing I learned is never bet against the U.S. consumer ever. How do you play it? Well, the logical place is the retailers that they mentioned. But I'll deviate a bit and say American Express. Now, I know you're going to say they're leveraged to travel. You are correct. But you know what? I think that's uh, in the price right now. The stock has sold off from that 179 high. Got an upgrade today, I believe, at Bank America from underperformed to neutral. It's just a matter of time before they go to a buy. 16 times is cheap. I think you buy American Express into this ho, ho, ho holiday season. I like what you did there. Um, Tim, but Guy brings up an interesting notion, and that is the competition uh, that retail has in terms of where consumers spend their money when they've been locked down for so long. And, And travel sort of came and went over the summer. I mean, fizzled because of the Delta variant. But could we see that pick up and could we see travel in, in other sort of entertainment be a competition for, for retailers? I, you know, I, I, I think that there's been a major itch scratched. And, and while, you know, guys sees heat miser out there, I see snow miser. I, I mean, I, I think you've got folks that are going to settle into the holiday season. And, and I think they're going to be spending, spending, spending. So uh, while I've pointed out that I think you've priced in a lot, I, I think the numbers this holiday season or are going to set records because of some of the the dynamics Jeff talked about in terms of where the consumer is, uh, where they are flushed, where they have jobs, and where they've been handed free money for the last two years. So um, I guess, you know, my my view is that you want to stay with the retailers that also have the ability to, uh, and Nadine referred to this, 
get the advantage of price inflation. Remember, CPI uh, is ultimately, and what can be passed on, especially in the form of food inflation and whatnot, is very good for retailers. It's actually very good for Walmart. Um, so I, you know, I'm not as concerned at the reopening trade or hospitality or, or experiential uh, things are going to distract from the consumer buying stuff. Uh, and I think this is one last hurrah before they hunker down. Be careful about normalized earnings, because I think we're going to start to hear about that uh, as we get through this third quarter. Not to be grinchy, but I'll be grinchy. How about supply chain disruptions? The, this would be sales denied, presumably, Jeff Mills. I mean, you're not going to say to your kid, sorry, it's on a container ship in China. I'll get you your present in a month. I mean, you're going to buy something else. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it, and that continues to be an overhang to, to this entire story. But I do think relative to the, the demand, the supply will at least be there enough so these companies can meet the targets that, that they've set forth, and if not, beat them. So it's clearly an issue, but I think you have this wall of worry kind of across the market, honestly. You know, whether you're talking about uh, the Fed or the, the policy uh, that's going to come down in Washington or whatever the case may be, um, so you have this narrative that, yes, there are tailwinds, but, but all of these things. And I understand that, and people for, are sort of bracing for more volatility. And you've seen some of these retail names trade sideways or come back a little bit, I think, in anticipation of some of that. So I think it's just as likely that these names climb that wall of worry uh, and continue to perform pretty well into the end of the year. We haven't mentioned the Fed. We haven't mentioned Jay Powell. We haven't mentioned the possibility that he can announce taper guy. Is he going to be the Grinch here when it comes to the markets? <laughs> well, you know, in my opinion, he's been the Grinch since October 2018. But that's another story. You know, it's, I'm just going to posit this. I'm not sure how to spell posit, but I'll do it anyway, Mel. Think about this. What did we talk about last week? That Rosengrens and Kaplan, right? They... Then they announced that they were going to get out of their holdings. It would be really interesting if that announcement, if it somehow delays, and stay with me on this one, delays any taper talk. Because think about people like me in a week or two weeks from now and the Fed announces a taper. What's the first thing I'm going to say? See, they got out of their positions right before the announcement. So they have to be very aware of that. With all that said... They're way behind. They're probably five years behind the curve on that one. Is he going to be the Grinch? There are many. I don't think he'll be one of them. All right. Our next guest says, despite signs of strength for the consumer, investors are still betting on a big breakdown in the market. Let's bring in Mandy Sue of Credit Suisse. Mandy, great to see you. Hey, hi, Melissa. It's great to be on the show. What are you seeing in the derivatives market that makes you believe this? So I would say, you know, you guys mentioned the wall of worry. That is exactly what we're seeing in the options market. So what stands out to us is that even though, you know, we've had what I would characterize as a relatively minor pullback, and even though levels of volatility are still fairly contained, um, other metrics in the option market are all at extremes. And in particular, the one that we look at very closely is called skew. And what essentially it measures is the relative demand for downside puts versus upside calls. So when that uh, when that measure is at, at a high, which is it is today, what it tells you is that people are pricing in a lot of downside risk, getting very bearish, putting on a lot of hedges, and not buying a lot of upside calls. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So not only are markets pricing a lot of downside risk, but also very pessimistic about a further upside potential from here going into the year end. So the, the upside calls are also trading very, very cheap relative to the downside puts. So where are the greatest opportunities in terms of buying calls or, or making you know, bullish bets on the market in, in certain sectors, Mandy? 
Sure. So if you look at kind of where that bullish sentiment has really diminished over the past few months, it's really come from the cyclical sectors. Um, and just to throw some stats out there. So back in April of this year, about half the stock in the energy sector, we're trading with what we call inverted call ski, which is just a measure of very extreme bullish sentiment, right? A lot of demand for those upside calls. 50% of the stocks in the energy sector back in April were trading with this characteristic. Today, it's 0%. Whereas if you look at, for example, comp services or some more defensive sectors, that bullish sentiment is still, I mean, it's, it's come down a little bit, but it's still very prevalent. So I would say in terms of where expectations have gotten really taken down, where we're seeing the most pessimism, it's very much in the cyclical sectors. And we think it's overdone at this point. So kind of on a risk reward basis, we like looking at upside calls, particularly in energy, industrials and financials, the really cyclical sectors to play a, a rally into your Hey, Mandy, Tim. So I I think what you're also saying is the other side of that. And and we've been all week talking about measuring where the weighting of the market is overall and the dominance of mega cap tech. Um, And essentially, that's where people have been hiding out. And of course, hiding out means markets move higher. Um, Do you believe the headline indices um, can run into some pressure? Because it sounds like the trade you're talking about is uh, the cyclicality that's seen a, a, you know, the, the negative headwind. And that the other side of that is that mega cap tech is something that that may be vulnerable uh, if people are actually accelerating their risk. Sure. So we could see a rotation out of the mega cap techs into these more cyclical sectors. I do think kind of in an environment where cyclicals do well, I think tech would hang in there. So I think on an absolute basis, I think the sector still does well, but on a relative basis, that's when it's going to underperform. And that's kind of what we saw in the first quarter of this year was, you know, tech still did okay. It was just underperforming the cyclical sectors. And you said uh, taper is not going to be a volatility event. It's going to be a snoozer. Yeah. So I, exactly. So maybe a little contrarian take here, but you know, I think you know if you look at historically what's been uh, a catalyst for volatility, what's been a you know negative catalyst for market, it's not taper, it's not monetary tightening in itself. It's when that tightening is a surprise. So if you look, for example, in 2013, which was the last time the Fed tapered, really the, the sell-off came in May of that year, right? That was the first time Bernanke talked about tapering. It caught investors off guard. That's when we had a spike in the VIX, the spike in bond market volatility. But by the time the Fed actually got around to tapering by December of that year, stocks were higher, bond yields were high, so bonds sold off, but stocks did well. Uh, volatility actually came in after the Fed started tapering or announced, uh, finally announced taper. So my point here is that, you know, once it's well anticipated by investors, once it's kind of priced in, it's unlikely to be a catalyst, uh, a volatility catalyst. Mandy, great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Mandy Shu, Nadine, where do you stand on this sort of contrarian notion that taper is not going to be anything for the markets in the end? Well, I agree with Mandy. I mean, I think that, sure, you could see a couple-day volatility around any of these events, but we agree in that oftentimes tapering can be a non-event in the short to intermediate term if you're looking at the stock market. But instead, we're, we look at options, as you know, Mel, and we see the same sort of, call it, put or downside protection being layered on 
implied volatility premiums, so the protection people are on is getting more expensive. And so there has to be some sort of catalyst for that to unwind, so people to take off the protection and start buying into the cyclicals that she's talking about. But the asymmetry definitely is in the places she said. The only one I would add is the U.S. dollar. That's probably, in my mind, the one of the most juicies. You could, you could see the UUP, which is the ETF, declining from here. So you could actually short that or buy put protection on it and probably make a little bit more asymmetric money on it. Guy, if we do see a bid for the cyclical sectors like the, like the financials, for instance, are, are the overall markets going to have a rough go of it? It's interesting you mentioned that. We talked about that last night, right? Um, yes is the short answer because if cyclicals, if the banks do well, I would imagine it's because rates are going higher. And all the banks are important. They're not nearly as big enough to support the broader market. So my suggestion would be or, or my premise would be Banks going higher would mean rates are going higher, which would mean the stocks that really dragged us higher, the high growth, high valuation names are going to get whacked. So I think banks can go higher with the broader market going lower. Well done by you, Mel. You pay attention, which is the cheapest thing you can do. Uh, and Tim has raised his hand, so I shall call on Timothy. Well, I, I feel like we need to tie this up with, again, a reference back to Christmas shows and whatnot. And it sounded like Manny thinks that tapering and the fear of that is much like the abominable snowman who once he, you know, once Hermie fixed that tooth, it, he was really a nice guy. And it was a, he was a non-event. And, and, you know, I, I, I feel we have some abominable snowman in our future. Well done, Tim. Coming up, a raging dumpster fire. Those are the words that sent shares of Berkeley Lights sinking today as a short seller took aim. If you don't know what Berkeley Lights is, you may have exposure to it. It's in Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF. We'll hear from the man behind this report and what he calls a publicly traded scam. But first, our own Tim Seymour stepping up to the mound to throw you his fast pitch. The name, he says, is a total home run investment. And later... Stick around for a bonus hour of Fast Money. We're taking your questions, so tweet us, and we might just answer you right on the air. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Buckle up. Three big headlines driving the EV trade today. First up, Lucid Motors zipping higher. It's Air Dream EV receiving an official EPA range rating of 520 miles on a single charge. That tops its competitors by more than 100 miles. Meanwhile, Ford cementing its name in the space as it begins pre-production of its all-electric F-150 Lightning truck at its Michigan plant. That model set to go on sale next spring. And bringing up the rear, General Motors recommending that Chevy Bolt owners park at least 50 feet away from other vehicles. That's a warning tied to its battery recall for reference, 50 feet. That's a five-story building or so, about seven and a half guy dummies. Um, so who is winning this EV race? It's interesting. They don't comment about what happens to the driver inside. They're just saying just park far away from other cars to save the other cars, I guess. But I, I don't know. Um, Guy, what do you think here? Who's winning the EV race? Well, I don't know who's winning, but I'll tell you what stock I think might be poised to win. I think it's Ford. And, you know, we've talked about Jim Farley a number of times. And if you look at the chart, this downtrend from the middle of June has been broken, I think. And he, just in terms of valuation, you know, they're going to earn $1.90 a share. You talk, put a 10 multiple on it, you have a $19 stock. I think they're probably best suited. Now, GM is as well. But your point about five-story building, I mean, that's sort of you know, a leap of five-story building. But I ain't parking my car five stories away. I mean, think about where we live. You, nobody has 50 feet to park anything away. It's crazy. It's madness. So letter F to me gets it done. I think it should trade higher. I think 19 is the target. 
I mean, I guess you can do that if you're living on a prairie or something like that. But, you know, you might not be driving that bolt. Um, Jeff Mills, you know, in, in the mix of this conversation is the notion that Tesla's not the only game in town. Ford's not the only. I mean, Rivian, this massive IPO is on the horizon. That's a company that is partly backed by Ford as well as Amazon. I mean, there are other there are other ways to play the space. There are, and I think that's been the knock against Tesla for a little while, that this competition was coming, and now I think you're actually starting to see it. So I've been wrong on Tesla for a long time, but I do think that that's a potential headwind to further price appreciation there. The GM story is a little ridiculous, but I do think companies like GM and Ford uh, have a big opportunity here. We've talked about GM for a long time, their $35 billion spending commitment over the next five years. I mean, this is a massive opportunity. And they're putting their money where their mouth is. And I think at eight times, uh, it's probably too cheap right here. And just to go back to Tesla for a second, obviously GM is not Tesla. And Tesla has a head start and advantage in all kinds of different areas. But when you're talking about a stock like GM, $80 billion market value versus a stock like Tesla, a $400 billion market value, that gap is probably going to close. So after the GM sell-off, I still want to own it here. Tim? The, the, the Chevy Bolt is nowhere on the radar screen of GM's forward-looking both EM and Ultium battery and their technology and autonomous analysis. It's not. It's it's meaningless. It's it's a cash cost here, um, and clearly for a company that's been focused also on free cash flow and running a very efficient business and being profitable, that's disappointing. But. Um, look, I, I, I think the Chevy Bolt is an inferior product, and it's not what GM's hanging their head on and where the technology for the future is. Uh, and I think GM's talked about the commitment they've made and the amount of money that they've thrown at it. And it's actually dwarf Ford. Um, I'm long Ford and GM, and I think Ford's news today is where they continue to pepper the headlines out there where um, they're combining the concept of EV and investment with the most, uh, the most certainly profitable car in North America and arguably one of the most popular, if not the most popular car in North America. Those are great headlines. That's a company that obviously is moving in the right direction. But um, I, I know uh, you'd expect me to say this about the Bolt, so I, I, I'm not listening to that. It doesn't really mean a lot to me. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Batter up. Jim is throwing some heat on a name he says is a total home run investment. That fast pitch is next. Plus, the short seller behind a scathing report that sent Berkeley Light sinking joins us next. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. This mining stock was the worst performer in the S&P 500 today, down more than 6%. But Tim says by the pullback, he's stepping up to the mound to deliver his fast pitch. So, Tim, take it away. Yeah, we're talking about Freeport McMoran. And as you noted, bad day today, uh, down 25% from the highs. We, look, we've been talking about this story. And I want to remind folks there's three reasons why this company is very different and even better positioned than it was in the go-go days of 2005 through eight, when the resources trade was alive and well. So let's go back there. This company in 2007, its best year of free cash flow, earned $4.7 billion or so in 2007, had about, two, two to th- about $3 billion in, in CapEx needs. Um, and that was at about a $3.90 a pound copper price. Uh, what this company's going to do this year, if you listen to J.P. Morgan, they're going to do five point seven billion in free cash flow. Next year, they're going to do $7 billion in free cash flow. So almost a 20% free cash flow yield. This is a company that is a free cash flow machine and has a C-suite that's incented along those lines. 
The second story here really is the story around the macro, which is that copper prices are moving higher. I know it's been a challenging run for some headline commodity prices. Copper's off the highs, but copper uh, has averaged close to four bucks a pound this year, and analysts are way behind in terms of where their copper assumptions are and where they're pricing the copper strip curve in companies like Freeport Mac. The reality is that the infrastructure build out, the infrastructure bill, uh, EV, we just talked about this as copper, copper heavy. And I think copper supply demand dynamics very much in favor of copper prices moving higher. And finally, the gold and, and copper ramping of this company, their, their operations are about as good as they've been. They're actually increasing production levels. So this is a company that if you look at it on next year EV EBITDA, it's trading less than four times. And I know you don't buy commodity companies. I say this all the time when they're cheap. So buy them when they're giving you almost a 20% free cash flow yield yet next year. And their CapEx uh, is not growing. Their CapEx is probably shrinking. And again, they're not growing at all costs. Freeport, to me, is a better run company than it's ever been. And it's never generated more free cash flow. Nadine has a question for Tim. Nadine? Yes, Tim, I agree with you, but one of the things I'm trying to get my arms around is this, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you incorporate it into your analysis, is that we agree that the macro is so important. So if you have, say, China selling some of their copper reserves or a lot of news that cyclicals won't be as strong because growth is decelerating, how do you incorporate that versus saying copper prices are high? We need the money flows, the liquidity to be going into these materials stocks, which might be more of a factor issue than a pricing of copper issue. How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I think these are these are trades, not investments for most people. And if you look at the weightings of, of the resource stocks in, in the indices, they've been inconsequential for years. So um, you can get frustrated here. And that's why I think investors that are that are patient here and go to sleep at night with a balance sheet that's never that's as good as it's been in a long time. And again, just back to the proper the copper price assumptions. Uh, copper is is priced in most of these models around 350, 340. I was going through a bunch of the numbers. JP Morgan is significantly below four bucks a pound. You don't need to be at 430 a pound, 440 a pound, which is where I think we're going to see the kind of free cash flow generation. I think the, the, the multiples we're talking about, nobody's saying copper has to hold these levels, even though I think it will. All right, no more questions. It is time Thanks. to vote. Are you buying Tim's fast pitch on FCX? Jeff Mills, what do you say? So I alluded to this earlier, but this is a market where you want to avoid value traps. So quality, quality, quality. Tim said it multiple times, high free cash flow yield. Those are the kind of companies you want to own in value. I think this is one of them. So I would be a buyer. And this is not a whiteboard, Kevin. This is the back of a white envelope. I'm sorry. Kevin being our executive producer for those who aren't on the inside of the Fast Money staffing game here. Um, Nadine, what do you say? I do have my whiteboard. There's my copper. So I would buy Freeport here. I think you could get it at 3360. It would be preferable. That's the low end of our trading range. But I agree with Tim. It should appreciate over time, especially if Mandy's right and cyclicals pop up. Uh, Guy, I don't know if you have a return monitor there, but actually Nadine said CU, which I, I give her extra credit for. Nicely done there, Nadine. Yeah, nice. Guy, what do you say? Well done. Uh, Mel, what do they call it when people blow up your phone when they send it? What do they call that? Blowing up your phone. Ah, blowing up your phone. So can you read the smart board for me, mm, okay, please, me if see. you may? Melms, what Thank is you. up with hashtag smooth hair? It looks good to yeah. me. 
Apparently, Tim Seymour's got some hair thing going. I mean, literally, my phone is blowing. Really? It's the craziest thing. So I'd like you what, to answer what's that because I'm sure his hair looks spectacular. I, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I don't have a return to Mel's point. But what I will say is Tim is spot on with this one. It's actually bounced off 32 a couple times. I think sort of some of the energy exposure has been dragging on this name. But if you look at Alcoa, U.S. Steel, some of its peers, I would say, those stocks are breaking out. I think FCX does as well. Downgraded recently by Credit Suisse. I think they're wrong. Well job. Good job by Tim. Hair notwithstanding. I mean, I don't know if it was a pitch or the hair, <laughs> but you got three votes, Tim, here on the panel. The yeah, traders have it. spoken. It's the hair. But it is now your turn out there. Are you buying Tim's fast pitch on Freeport McMoran? You just like his hair tonight? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll reveal the results later on in the show. Coming up, we're going to have a food fight. Shares of Chipotle and Beyond Meat heading in opposite directions. We'll tell you what's driving the moves. But first, the man behind the scathing report that sends shares of Berkeley Lights sinking today. Why he is calling this stock a publicly traded scam and how Berkeley Lights is firing back. The details and Fast Money Return. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Berkeley Lights plunging a whopping 11% today, adding to yesterday's 19% drop. This after activist short, sell- short seller firm uh, Scorpion Capital yesterday published a scathing note on the biotech company, calling it a publicly traded scam and a quote-unquote raging dumpster fire with a defective flagship product and no ability to survive. Berkeley Lights is also, by the way, the 40th largest holding in Kathy Wood's flagship ARK Innovation ETF. Joining us now is one of the authors of that report, Scorpion Capital founder, Kira Colon. Kira, great to have you back with us. It's great to be back, Melissa. Thank you. It sounds like a, a lot of this report is based on uh, interviews with with former employees. Can you can you tell? I mean, how do we know that these employees aren't disgruntled and that they have the latest information with the company if, if they no longer work there? Uh, so the report is partly based on interviews of former employees, but uh, actually the heart of the report, Melissa, is we talked to 14 of Berkeley Light's largest customers. The company sells a laboratory instrument that's used for screening cells. The use case is drug development. The customers are large pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So. You know, the most important thing uh, to verify as part of the research uh, was what do customers think of the product? So we talked about 7X employees. We talked to 14 large customers. These are not, you know, rinky-dink customers. Uh, we talked to Amgen. We talked to Bristol-Myers. You know, we talked to, uh, you know, Takeda, Abby, Novartis. You can just go down the list. And the feedback from all 14 customers was extremely negative. They told us that the product, which is overpriced to begin with, it, you know, at a shocking $2 million dollars, but the product basically doesn't work. It doesn't do what it purports to do. Uh, and in many cases, they've just mothballed it. They don't even use it after spending $2 million, which is uh, extremely damning information. And that was actually confirmed by the former employees that we talked to. And, uh, and we're very careful to screen for the former employees that, that we speak with. Occasionally, you can have employees that are disgruntled, but we talk to former executives. You know, these are extremely credible people. We verify that information by talking to uh, many different ex-employees. And, you know, in this case, the information was very consistent from employee to employee, Mm -hmm. from customer to customer. So we're very confident that the findings are correct. But, Kerry, what strikes me is that, you know, you've talked to all these major customers. You're basically saying that some of the largest pharma and biotech companies out there got fleeced 
by this company. They got taken uh, that they paid for a product that that doesn't work. They paid lots of money and and there's no recourse. We haven't heard anything about it. They haven't gone back to the company and said we want a refund. I mean, they, they just bought it. Doesn't work. Stick in the closet and move on. That's exactly what happened. We think they actually did get fleeced. So you have to understand, you know, how these large pharmaceutical companies work, right? If you have a, you know, a company with a $100 billion market cap, they basically have an infinite budget. Uh, you know, you have a company with, uh, you know, prominent venture capitalists behind it, and people get dazzled by the promise of a new technology. And, you know, if you think a product can help you develop a drug that, you know, could drive $10 billion in sales, what do you care if you got and you spent $2 million? So you got, you buy a machine. You know, some executive uh, got sucked into the vision, and the scientists and the users day to day realize that it actually doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And you know, some of the interesting feedback that we got, what uh, was exactly that kind of a, a dynamic, where there's somebody, you know, at a higher level of the company who got seduced by the promise of the technology, but the people that actually have to use it, they resist using it. Hey, Kira, it's Guy. Hey, I appreciate your work and coming on. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, in some cases, you know, there are customers that we've heard who actually did return the product. And one of the questions that we actually asked all 14 of the customers that we interviewed was, would you send the product back if you could? And a number of them actually said that they would. They just didn't bother because they didn't think they'd get the money back. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I, I'm not looking to necessarily comment, but BTIG apparently spoke to gruntled customers. There actually is such a thing, as you know. Um, and, and they reiterated, I think, a $65 price target. Can you sort of speak to that? Because it clearly flies in the face of some of the things you're saying. I'm not suggesting you're wrong or they're right. It's just interesting that on the same day, they make pretty much the opposite comments. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen their report, so I don't know which customers they've talked to. I don't know if they're large customers or small customers. You know, want us to be very careful. You know, if you look at the customer testimonials page on Berkeley Light's website, it's a huge red flag because they only list four customers. And, you know, two of those customers look like they're too small to even be able to afford a $2 million product. So we think they got the product for free. So then they go out and they say positive things. Of those four customers, only one of those is actually even a pharmaceutical and biotech company. You know, where are the customer testimonials from, you know, Pfizer, Novartis, First Myers Squibb, all these marquee customers that they have? Why aren't they on the customer testimonials page, you know, saying positive things? So. You know, we talked to a very comprehensive set of, of, uh, of customers. There's always some user in some company. Uh, you know, you may, may have, you know, some sort of a positive experience with the technology. Uh, there are some one-off, you know, use cases where people pay, they pay $2 million for the machine. You know, they try to get some use out of it. So they find some kind of experiment that they can run, you know, some sort of low-value assay, but it's not really why they went out and they spent $2 million. But, you know, let's just step back for a moment. Let me just make kind of one very important a high-level observation about this company. So if you're in the stock, there's basically one question that you need to be asking yourself. Uh, you know, this is a company that trades at 20 times sales, right? It's valued like a growth stock. Yesterday morning, before we published our report, it was trading at 27 times sales. Product sales are basically flat over the last four quarters. They're basically flat over the last two years, yet it has a growth stock multiple. They started selling this product in 2016, right? They placed 92 of the systems, 92, over five years, and they say they have a $23 billion TAN. Right. So the elephant, the elephant in the room is $23 billion TAN. It's a game-changing technology. It's been on the market for five years. Why do you only have 92 machines in the field? 
care. Um, interesting point there. I mean, some might say pandemic had something to do with that. But here's my last question here, and that is what what position do you have in the stock? How are you expressing your short position? And have you covered any of that position since the stock uh, started falling yesterday when you published the report? Uh, there are a number of ways that we express a bearish view, uh, you know, which were the stock. Uh, you know, we sometimes we try to buy puts. We don't comment on day-to-day trading activities, but, uh, you know, what I will say is this is a core long-term holding for us. This is a very high conviction short. Uh, it's a large position. Uh, you know, when I was on a few months ago, we talked about Quantenscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's still a core short for us. So, uh we don't publish research. We don't put our name behind an idea unless it's something that uh, uh, we think is really convincing and unless we plan to be in it for a while. All right. Kier, great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for Kier having Cologne me. Cologne of Scorpion Capital. We did just receive a statement in response to this report from Berkeley Lights. They tell us. We have strong and continued confidence in our business, technology, customer relationships, and the value we deliver. The Berkeley Lights technology enables our customers to find the biology that cures disease. The report from Scorpion, a self-proclaimed short seller, contains highly misleading statements, groundless claims, and a clear lack of industry understanding. It is important to note that Scorpion never reached out to us prior to the publication of their report. We believe the sole purpose of the report was to serve the short seller's interests at the expense of Berkeley Lights shareholders. Berkeley Lights is well positioned to continue to drive customer success, execute our business strategy. Um, Obviously, the report, whether or not it's true, the report has had an impact on the stock, Tim. We've run into the situation time and time. I mean, Kieran mentioned that he was on the show talking about his sort of quantum scale not too long ago as well. We've seen it time and time again. Big report, flashy headline, huge dive in the stock. Short sellers are controversial. It's also the hardest thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I'll, I'll let his reporting and the company's statement and assertions of fact, you know, go toe to toe and let, let that play out. One of the things I thought was as interesting about his assertion to the downside is also I think he used the word VC pump. Um, and that the community of folks that have been investing in this um, and that this is also symptomatic of broader investing uh, out of the VC clubbiness and the SPAC world. So, you know, part of this, uh, I think, is really also just the dynamic of, of where there's a lot of froth and misperception and group think and group investing um, that's sometimes self-fulfilling. And, and I think that that element of this criticism is very interesting and I, I think has some credence. All right. Coming up, we are biting into a big food call. Beyond Meat burns out today. We've got the details next. But first, as we head out, CNBC is celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. All month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders and more. Here's Norwegian Cruise Line's president and CEO, Frank Del Rio. Census just came out. We make up 20 percent of the U.S. population. That means Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Argentinians. We are the melting pot of the United States. And we've been so successful, and we're going to continue being successful because we have ambition. We want to succeed. We believe in education, and we believe in hard work. I came to this country as a six-year-old Cuban refugee in 1961, and those were my secrets to success. And they can be yours as well.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Piper Sandler is kind of over Beyond Meat, saying its current all-channel retail momentum lacks consensus expectations while cutting its price target to 95 bucks from 120 And it's writing to an underweight from a neutral. The stock losing more than 2% today. So, Mills, you want to take a bite out of this one? <laughs> I'll I'll give it a shot here. Look, this is a stock that I haven't liked for for quite some time. I think the chart is still looking kind of rough here. It's pretty important that it holds that $100 level. If it doesn't, I think there's some pretty significant downside. I think, generally speaking, it's part of that high growth story that I I really don't like right now. I think those companies are, are going to ultimately get hit as rates start to drift higher. And I still question the, the addressable market here, the, the fact that dietary preferences are going to shift enough to actually justify the current valuation of the stock. I think you've seen some compression in margins lately, so it's still one that I'm going to stay away from. Yeah. Nadine, how about you? I agree with Jeff, but I wouldn't short it. The problem is there's high short interest. A lot of this people already know. There's high input costs. People are talking about it. Pepsi just came out and said they're going to have... Uh, plant-based snacks. So there's just a lot of headlines out there already. A lot of people short this. People are paying up a lot for protection. So this is one of those which is like, yeah, there could be downside, but there's a lot of people already betting that way. So it's kind of a consensus bet already. Most stocks are plant-based now, unless you're talking about jerky. (laughs) So much, so much to to chew on there, so to speak. Um, Check out shares of AMC, the stock giving up gains into the close. Check out this tweet from the company's CEO, Adam Aaron who wrote, cryptocurrency enthusiasts, you likely know AMC Theaters has announced we will accept Bitcoin for online ticket and concession payments by year-end 2021. I can confirm today that when we do, we also expect that we similarly will accept Ethereum, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash. Coming up next hour in a bonus edition of Fast Money, I spoke with Adam Aaron. He tells me another way the company is trying to cash in on the crypto craze. He's never talked about this before. That is coming up at the top of the hour. But up next, Merck falling in today's session, but one option trader is betting on a big turnaround for the stock. We've got the details next, and there is still time to vote in our Fast Money poll. Are you buying Tim's fast pitch on Freeport McMoran? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. The results are in right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Merck ticking lower, but finishing the day well off session lows when Whale in the options market just made a huge change to their position in this healthcare name. Mike Co joins us with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so we saw well over two times the average daily options volume in Merck and calls significantly outpaced puts. That unusual activity was related to a single trade. Specifically, we saw 15,000 December 75 strike calls trade. Those traded for uh, a little over a dollar uh, 46. We also saw 15,000 of the 82 and a half strike calls trade for a slightly under 50 cents. And we also saw 10,000 of the 65 strike puts trade. Now, what was going on here? So the 82 and a half uh, strike calls from December actually traded huge blocks back on August 30th. And I think what's going on, we've seen a $6 per share decline in the stock price since that took place, I believe this trader is actually rolling that call strike down. They're now long the 75s. And since a lot of institutional holders of stock will sometimes boost their upside exposure by owning calls, I think they might also be simultaneously hedging a very large equity position with those 65 strike puts, essentially converting their long stock into calls there as well. But this essentially demonstrates continued commitment to Merck on the long side for somebody who I believe was already a substantial holder of the stock. 
All right, Mike, thanks for that. And we'll see you at the top of the hour for our bonus hour of Fast Money. And by the way, for more options action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time is a full show. All right, time to find out if you are buying Tim's fast pitch on FCX. The results are in. Take a look at that. More than 59% of voters say yes. So it is a home run if we were allowed to play Tony Braxton. We might play it. Um, Time for the final trick, or actually time for your life. Let's go around the horn. Tim, the winner of this, what do you say? Final trade. First of all, we, Tony's a huge fan of this show. I don't know why she's not letting us play that music anymore. But anyway, I'm going to dance with the one that brung us. That would be Freeport Max. Stay there. Nadine. I'm going to go with AYR Strategies. If you can pick it up 20, it's quite the buy. Mm. Jeff Mills. I like Penn National Gaming here. You know, it's 40% off its highs, now trading at 25 times forward. I think with China hitting all the big casinos, uh, Penn with 100% U.S. revenue exposure, I think it's a good entry point. Guy Dami. Mel, if I'm going to spend 20 minutes in the can, it's because of CMG, not BYND. CMG. Thanks for watching Fast Don't Go Anywhere. Bonus hour, Fast Money coming up. 